0: So our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities.
1: We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, my friends. Hi.
2: Hi.
0: What are you guys drinking this week? I'm back on that Red Lodge Ales... Hefeweizen in my, my favorite glass. Mm. I'm loving it. I'm kicked back in the new studio. Oh,
1: yeah. We're officially all armchair theologians this week. Fe-
0: yes. We
2: are. I'm not at a yes. desk
0: anymore for recording. This feels very good. Congratulations, sir.
2: Welcome to the club.
1: Emily, what are you drinking?
2: I'm drinking your classic H2O. Good old water. Out of a hydro flask.
1: Is drinking water making you more planetary these days because you're uh, so far along?
2: stop yes. stop it is It is I'll talk to my friend <laughs>
0: Emily like that
2: I, I, hey I will take that description any day it beats being called chunky that was not a fun description
1: wow I am not, not for chun- anyone new Emily is pregnant <laughs> yes like and third trimester chunky. pregnant at this point yes Today, I am drinking the Kilt Lifter Scotch Ale from Pike Place Brewing. And I'm also drinking what a. What a delightful. Isn't that a great name? And I'm also drinking a green juice to like balance out the healthness, I guess. Well, now,
2: so this is a serious question. I'm ready. Here's a, here's a serious question. When you drink beer, lager, ale, whatever, do you like your glasses chilled?
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yes. Usually. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I keep my glass. I keep my beer glasses in the freezer for that very reason. Oh,
2: amen. Absolutely.
0: It's the only correct way. That is really smart to do it. Uh, we have a couple things
1: this week. Uh, first of all, shout out to Adriana, our newest patron who actually, I'm so sorry, Adriana, I meant to shout you out like two weeks ago and then I didn't write it down. Um, Uh, we're so so glad to have you supporting us. Thank you so much for buying our drinks this week. Yes. Thank you. Um, didn't we have another announcement oh yeah um we have come up with an idea here uh we have a new patreon goal when we reach which we are almost halfway there when we reach 20 supporters on our patreon we are going to do a bible study so if uh anyone wants to vote that way towards something like that if you'd like to join something like that feel free to support us on patreon but steven uh, this week, I'm curious where your mind is at theologically. Like what have you been thinking about? What has been on your mind? I know that we've like touched on a couple topics here and there that we've like like kind of brushed aside for later. So I kind of wanted to see like which what thing you kind of want to circle back to.
0: Oh,
2: how is it with your soul? How
0: is it with my soul? Honestly, the Bible study idea we have for the for Ravel now is kind of one of those things that's sitting on me. Like I feel like I need to get back to reading this text in a community and read it in such a way that's not, you know, I'm not trying to do theology or like really try to define what God is and what I believe about God. Rather, I want to get back into a community that can read the, read the scripture and read the text as a way to identify like places for our own spiritual development or... I guess personal application is a good way to say that. Mm, Like mm -hmm. I've been thinking about like, I've been experiencing a lack of that relationship to the Bible lately, which to be honest was, has been a relationship. It was like, that's the way I started reading the Bible and only in the last four or five years, um, which sounds like a long time, but to me it doesn't feel like a long time. Like it's, you know, my paradigm of, of scripture has changed. And I think I may have accidentally thrown out the idea of using it, for spiritual development in the process. So I'm thinking about that. I'm also thinking about, I'm recording in the new studio in the new house that my wife and I just bought. And I'm also thinking about the concept of a Christian's responsibility for nonviolence and like, and home defense (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, Not going to lie. That sounds like a really interesting topic to me. Okay. Yeah, talk about it does.
0: That. Okay. Yeah. I'm into it.
1: Okay. So tell me more about that. Like what, what has gotten you thinking about that more lately? Is it just the process of buying a house and like having your own property? Um, have you been reading anything? What, what, what else is informing the way you're thinking
0: about this? So this whole thread in my mind started a few years ago when I read Preston Sprinkle's book called Fight. The subtitle is A Christian's View of Nonviolence and he makes some pretty compelling arguments for as a Christian we should never turn a gun on another human being we should never use a weapon designed to kill another person to defend yourself and he makes a pretty good case for like all out pacifism almost in like a like an Anabaptist strain mm. of theology mm-hmm. you know taking that very seriously taking cues from Jesus Disarming Peter in the garden of Gethsemane saying like, no, this is not how we resist, you know, and he heals the person that Peter smacked with a sword. The basic claim there is that in disarming Peter in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus disarmed the entire Christian church of any form of violence to achieve their
2: spiritual Mm. ends. Okay. I've heard that before,
1: but I don't know like how old that idea comes from, like where, like who kind of conceptualized that? Do you right.
2: Think? Like, do you know where did it come from? I don't I have no idea
1: because I've heard that multiple times.
0: Yeah. To be honest, I don't know either. I think I've heard it from people like Preston Sprinkle, Greg Boyd, Brian Zond. Those are kind of the contemporary mm-hmm. like pastors and teachers I've heard it from. I don't know how far back that goes, but, you know, as far as you know, like the, the question is new on my mind because. You know, purchasing a home is a lot different than signing a 12 month lease to rent. And the very first thing I bought for my home was a fire extinguisher. Like I've never owned my own fire extinguisher. But I
1: thought then, you were going to say firearm.
0: No. <laughs> but then when you move in and you realize like, oh yeah, like my dryer could start a fire by accident and I need to be able oh, to sure. respond to that. I've always kind of thought of it as like, oh, well, the landlord will have a up-to-date fire extinguisher under the sink for me when I move in. And like just thinking about all the things that I haven't had to think about before as a renter versus being a homeowner. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I just never conceptualized as like keeping a firearm as a viable way of defending my home. Maybe it would be worth mentioning
1: that like all of us having grown up in Montana, it's very normal to see people open carrying and people also conceal carry weapons all the time because people get permits to do it. Right. Like. I, I think I forget about that sometimes, like how n- normal that was for me because like now I live in Seattle and there is no open carry allowed. and I think concealed carry is a lot more um, maybe not harder to get, but I don't think it's as common for people to get. Sure, sure. And like a couple weeks ago, my boss like pulled me aside for a second and she was like, just so you know, I'm like I'm not alarmed, but we do have a, a gentleman who is obviously carrying. I talked to him. He seems like a very nice man. But she just like like briefed me on like, mm-hmm. like, just to know that someone was caring. And like, I just like forget that there's like this contrast between some different parts of America, even though like we have the Second Amendment in our Constitution, that people definitely have different attitudes about guns and personal defense in different places.
2: Sure.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would assume it's pretty similar in Wyoming, Emily.
2: Uh, it's probably worse in Wyoming. Yeah,
0: Wyoming is like stereotypically the cowboy state. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's where that mythos comes from. Is kind of the wild Here, west. I'll, Wyoming. I'll, let
2: me set the scene for you. Um, there are several grocery stores where they will have you know uh cases that would display sunglasses, like enclosed cases that would display sunglasses or like perfumes. Um, mm-hmm. imagine that, but it's displaying guns.
0: Yeah. Yeah
2: like in a grocery store, not not like a Walmart where they're tucked away in the back and it's, it's like out in the open. Like people can twirl this case around and look at pistols and rifles. Whoa. And yeah, that's the state I'm in.
1: <laughs> uh, what have you two read or um, been informed by when it comes to thinking about a Christian's responsibility or relationship toward Nonviolence or uh, peacemaking, or uh, etc. Mm. I can think of a couple books off the top of my head.
2: Sure, yeah. Um,
1: particularly, I tried to read earlier. I think Stephen, you mentioned Greg Boyd. I think you just name dropped him, but I tried to read his big Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It's like a two-volume, like theological work. Like it's freaking huge, man. Yeah, I got four chapters in. Like I'm, I went to college. I can read some thick stuff just not not to brag a little bit but I I barely made it four (laughs) chapters in like it is he is so thick and like so intellectually minded in that book so anyway I put that one down and I read his like dumbed down version for lay people which is called cross vision it's a little cheesy of a title but Mm -hmm. it's like his distilled vision about like basically the summary uh, from what I gathered just to like distill it down this is not doing it justice because he obviously wrote like thousands of words about this. But the basic premise that I came away with was um, he is concluding theologically that the God of the Bible um, has always looked like Jesus and we just didn't know it yet until Jesus revealed himself as the final revelation, which Stephen, you've mentioned that a couple times, I think. I'm not sure if you've read Greg Boyd.
0: I have not. I get most of that phraseology from uh, listening to Brian Zahn's sermons. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in my mind, he's probably pretty informed by Greg Boyd. Oh, yeah, they're buds, for sure.
1: Yeah, okay. uh, But it's interesting to, like, hear Greg Boyd talk about, like, how he came to write the book, because when he... Do you guys know much about this book?
2: I've heard a little bit about it.
1: I don't know the
0: background. Sounds like you're about to give us some background. Okay, so when
1: he set out to write this book, like, probably a a decade ago, at least, he was planning to write a book to justify the violence in the Old Testament. Wow. Like, from a theological standpoint, like, God must have allowed this to happen for these reasons. Wow, yeah. And... So like the more that he dove into it, the more he just realized that he couldn't do that and that his theology was changing by like trying to study it from that angle. And so he then ended up concluding that the depictions of God in the Old Testament are not accurate to describe God as we see him revealed in Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. that's where he like gets this idea of accommodation, that God accommodates not perfect depictions of God that it would like lead us to a fuller understanding of God. Yeah. Sure. So that's kind of like his like premise, but that but he approaches it in terms of nonviolence that like, because Jesus was nonviolent, therefore we must be nonviolent. And um, also Greg Boyd's church has like become Anabaptist for those reasons.
0: Yeah. Which means a lot knowing where his church is. Like he's in Minneapolis in the midst. I mean, like yeah. at the time of recording, oh, we, yeah. we mm-hmm. just got the verdict on Derek Chauvin. And we're hearing all sorts of uh, just heartbreaking Mm -hmm. stories of police misconduct happening in the in the Twin Cities. And like his his church is smack dab in the middle of that. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Well,
2: and just other means of violence during the trial and even right after the verdict, there was the the young boy in Chicago. There was the 16 year old young woman, as some people say. No, she was a girl. Like we do not need to hypersexualize women of color when you're sixteen. you're still a girl um but regardless there's mm-hmm. there are so many things that are unfolding in our world, and I, I think some people want to say, "Oh, it's now you know coming to the service. No, it's always been there. It's just now more prominent than it used to be because it's all we see, and I think we as Christians have a duty to respond and one of the books that i um I remember reading in Seminary was "What about Hitler and it was a very interesting book it yeah, it was an interesting book because it talks about how we have this idea of turning the other cheek and resisting violence, but it it's not always justifiable for Christians to retaliate in the face of evil, so there's kind of this dilemma of what do we do in this situation where we struggle with questions like, well, what about Hitler like was Hitler Christian? the methods of Hitler's agenda. You know, how was that handled by Christians and non-Christians alike? And then looking at more modern, more contemporary issues today, specifically with gun violence. It was very interesting. It was a very interesting book.
1: <sighs> the other book that comes to mind for me, which I just read this last year, it's by Shane Claiborne, and I'm blanking on the other author's name, but it's called Beating Guns. But they... They document, like, they give a very uh, well-rounded, like, history of gun sales, but also gun violence in the United States. Like, kind of the history of, like, how we came to, like, have this very unique relationship to firearms in the United States. Mm -hmm.
2: Is it Michael Martin?
1: Yes, it is Michael Martin. Yes. That's when it
2: sounded familiar.
1: Yeah, he is the founder of this organization called Raw Tools, which... Uh, more or less, they just like go around to different communities, ask for gun donations. Like if people want to properly disarm a gun instead of Mm -hmm. uh, selling it or donating it or a government buyback program, like literally like dismantling a gun. Cause some people want to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. like some communities are so riddled with gun violence that they don't want to like keep a gun in someone else's possession even. And so they like, they take that verse from Isaiah that says, uh, like they will turn their swords into plowshares. And so they like very symbolically turn them into gardening tools or jewelry or Mm. things like that. And so like they wrote this book about like how they came to reveal that concept uh, and just kind of document like where we are at currently in America's relationship to guns and gun violence and how to maybe have a better relationship to guns. So this kind of brings us back to like this question, Stephen, I think of like, so what now? Like, obviously we can, We can talk all day about like our history with violence as christians because there's been tons of it right or like Mm -hmm. how christians should or should not respond to other people's violence which i also think is interesting but tell me where your mind's at like what is the question for you when it comes to theologically thinking through violence or maybe even like maybe you're thinking about like violence in the bible and how to make sense of that because like you were kind of mentioning like you're wanting your spiritual development to be formed and shaped by the bible so like how how do you approach something like violence?
2: And safety I think is the other side of it cuz like what brought this out was wanting to question if you needed a firearm to protect yourself in your home. Right. So this idea of safety I think also comes to to play.
0: Yeah. Um I want to take it first like in the Bible I I mean I've I've spoken about my opinions on the Canaanite conquest and whether God was the one who actually ordained that happening or if it was just, you know, a cultural moment where, I mean, it was, it was common at the time to seek confirmation from something external and something divine to say like, yes, uh, like my God will give us the victory in the upcoming battle. And I think the Israelites were probably just being sucked into that um, way of thinking as they were wandering the the wilderness for their 40 years like they were finally liberated from Egypt but the further uh, into the wilderness they got the more they forgot about what how radical it was to be released from an empire like Egypt and now all of a sudden they're coming in as the conquerors and you know the story goes that they're destroying the Canaanites in their path and like they have basically divine permission saying yes you must kill every man, woman, and child and like eradicate this people group. And I've heard I've heard really weird conspiratorial type arguments where it was like the Canaanites were actually like Nephilim or descendants of like fallen angels and that's why God needed to use Israel to do that. And like I have no idea what to think about that. I am inclined to think mm. that's another one of those like we're taking a few weird verses from Genesis 6 and trying to extrude that whole idea into all of human history, which is very gets very problematic. But so as, as, as far as the, I don't know the textual argument, I do very consistently come back to Peter's disarming happening in the garden of Gethsemane. And then just the fact that Jesus is like, he chooses no like zero retaliation in the face of all his, uh, all the people who are beating him cramming the crown of thorns on his head, you know, forcing him to carry his cross, like all this, like there was no resistance in him whatsoever. And I I just, I'm so convinced by that example. Like he, throughout his ministry, he would always say to find your life is to actually lose it. And like, when we pray, we pray like it is actually in dying that we are born to eternal life. And I think that become like, I'm willing to make that literal in my sense where I'm willing to die to uphold my values of nonviolence um kind of my buzzwordy way to have this conversation with my friends because like you pointed out josh like i am embedded in a montanan culture that is very second amendment and very gun like open carry concealed carry when i'm when i'm speaking with family members who think i am being naive or misguided or I don't know. It's kind of a theme that's been coming out on the on my other podcast, the Whiskey Bench, lately, where it's like I am way more willing to trust people than I realized before. Like I just I I believe so deep in my core that humanity is good at the base of everything. Like within the Imago Dei, that I'm willing to trust more than I am to mistrust. And maybe that's mm. maybe that could be misguided, but I I take that very seriously when it comes to guns. And I always tell my friends and family when this conversation comes up is like if i'm carrying a gun in the home if i hear someone like break in my front door or break a window or anything if i'm carrying a gun that at least doubles the chances that there's a killer in the house
2: Mm -hmm.
0: right one of the biggest uh examples
1: or like thought experiments i guess that i feel like really changed my perspective on this was one of greg boyd's like people ask him all the time um, I heard this in one of his Q and A's, like if someone broke into your home and it was holding a gun to your wife's head, wouldn't you want a gun to get out of the situation to yeah. like, shoot the intruder? Who's got a gun to your wife's head. Right. And his answer to that has always been, what if that person is my son <laughs> and I love them both equally. Like if I'm willing to shoot someone else, that means that I'm not seeing them through God's eyes. Right. And yeah. I'm viewing myself as more important than them. Yeah. And that just like broke open that the concept of like acting nonviolently in the world as a Christian mm-hmm. for me, like that completely yeah. turned it on its head for me, I think.
0: Well, and I think that's, that's, that's a really important question because it, it helps you break out of the paradigm of like the person breaking into your house could be as scared as you are right now. You know, they're acting in desperation, you know, they're here to steal a TV because they can sell it so they can pay for food or drugs or something. And, and even that is probably a stereotypical uh, line of thinking. Like it doesn't have to be food or drugs or whatever, but it's like, they're here. I choose to believe that someone who is like breaking and entering isn't necessarily doing it just because they like to watch the world burn in some form of Mm -hmm. anarchism, you know, but they're here to, they're here to achieve some sort of end. And to like, I, I just choose to believe that they're, they're probably also as scared as you are. But yeah, if I'm also, like hiding behind the barrel of a gun that doubles the chances that someone dies here. And I, I take so seriously the, like I'm pro life in like a really extreme way. If that, like I'm not willing to kill someone. I also think abortion is problematic. I think it's very complicated, but overall I think abortion should reduce or go to zero, but I'm pro I'm pro life from, you know, people always talk about pro life from womb to tomb. Like I don't think, it's it's part of our call as Christians to take a human life and feel like that's like God has given us permission to do so.
1: <laughs> that's actually a real, I feel like that's a really good, interesting example that you just brought up. Like I feel it like is. there are just yeah. so many angles on like a Christian's response to violence, particularly because there are so many different things that seem more violent than others to Christians. Like some Christians care a lot about abortion. Like yeah. I've been in those circles before some christians i feel like are more affected by gun violence Mm -hmm. and therefore have like really strong opinions about like gun policy yep Mm -hmm. um other christians have really strong opinions about like violence against them or their family or uh the church community like i've participated in churches that like had people concealed carrying and as detailed security guards basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right yeah so have i or i feel like the other interesting angle for me is like the the history of christian violence Like, Christians have committed violent atrocities. And for some people, that's like, for some reason, I kind of don't understand this. And I wish I did. But for some people, it seems like that's the straw that breaks the camel's back when they find out that Christians have committed violence.
0: Yeah. Mm, Yeah.
1: Crusades, Spanish Inquisition. Which, like, obviously awful, but, like, also happened forever ago. Right. Like, why is that the straw that breaks the camel's back? For Like, I really wish
0: I understood that. That's true. I, I think sometimes an outsider to the Christian faith can look at it and the, the way I read scripture now, the way I read the actions of Jesus of Nazareth in the world, like it, it, on a plain text reading, it seems so obvious to me that disciples of Jesus Christ ought to be utterly nonviolent to the point that they are willing to take the worst form of torture that humanity could develop at the time. And take it with a weird sense of joy, you know, Jesus is able to Mm. hang on the cross, suffering all these atrocious beatings, bruising, slashings, piercings, um, suffocating to his death. And yet he's willing to spend some of his breath to tell the criminal to his side, like today you will be with me in paradise. Like he's still offering Mm. grace and like father forgive them for they know not what they do. That it seems so clear that that's what a disciple of Christ should be. So I think an outsider to the Christian faith who is able to look at that and be like, Jesus was like that. And yet even historical Christians have been able to um, attempt to justify things like the Crusades and the Inquisition and the Salem witch trials and all these things. And I think an outsider to the faith can easily look at that and see the disconnect and be like, well somehow there's something being lost in translation and if the thing that is the modern the modern expression of faith in that nonviolent guy somehow becomes violent then i want nothing to do with it
2: and yet christians and not all but and not actually not everyone who is christian does this but we have this other side to the coin where we then say oh all muslims are terrorists uh what do we do with that (laughs) We we can't we can't have both sides of the coin like that. There we we just can't. And I'm wrestling with this honestly. Like it's well, I feel
1: like that's such a great example because that totally begs the question of like, should Christians respond to violence differently if it's a Christian versus not a Christian? Like you know how the the whole calling people out for their sin thing is like already kind of a controversial conversation within Christianity. Sure. Yeah, like you right. can't treat a Christian. Like you can't hold a non Christian to the same standard you would hold a Christian. Right. In some ways. Like I've heard that argument made before, whether it's I don't know, quote unquote, sexual immorality or lying or bad non-godly thoughts. Like, well, we can't expect the non elect to act like the elect. Which to be honest, I think you could make a good argument for, regardless of like what type of Christian you are. Sure. If we believe that believing in Jesus and following Jesus, like actually changes us in the way that we think, then of course not everyone's going to act like that. Like that's counterintuitive. Mm. So then mm-hmm. should you treat violence created by non-Christians differently than violence created by Christians?
0: That feels like a non-question to me, if I'm honest. I like oh, okay. How so? I well, I don't I don't know why we have to ask the question because either way I feel like our call as Christians is to respond with non-violence, respond with love and respond with that that type of subversive You know, like it it took Jesus breathing his last and saying it is finished for uh, the Roman soldier at the the foot of the cross to say, like, what have we done? This was wrong. But it only took Jesus like accepting it to the very end. Had he fought back in any way, Jesus would have appeared as any other criminal being hung on a cross at the time, like just feeling like he was uh, improperly condemned or raging against the dying of the light, as it were. Um, Counterpoint, Jesus
1: disarmed Peter and did not disarm the Romans.
0: Correct. Okay. Jesus but, made
1: a point to disarm his followers, particularly, yeah, without but, pointing the finger mm, at the Romans saying, you should not be violent. He didn't hold his disciples and uh like the oppressing nation, the occupation uh the same way.
0: Right. But throughout scripture A prophet is sent to a specific people group and the people of God to critique the actions of the people of God, right? Like Totally.
1: So should Christians only preach nonviolence to ourselves? No. Rather than the nations? I
0: think maybe the trajectory that Jesus may have been hoping for was that as more peoples of every tribe, tongue, and nation are drawn to himself more of the world becomes nonviolent as they do so regardless of whether they are a roman centurion or an american marine mm. because i mean like paul has some pretty compelling language to say like as soon as you adopt baptism as the sign of your discipleship in christ that like you know the the baptism actually is what we talk about being the symbolic representation of us dying to our old self and old self and being raised in the new So if we take that outward sign of the baptism to say, I am of a new citizenship, like Paul has some pretty compelling language to be like, I am first a Christian, second a Roman, and I will use my Roman citizenship in order to claim my rights to get to Caesar's throne, you know, as he's being accused of all the things he's being accused of, like toward the end of Acts. But first, he fundamentally views himself as a citizen of a different kingdom. And I, I think that's important for American Christians to keep in mind as well. Totally. Um, I have really, really complicated views about the American military because of mm-hmm. that, you know, like. Uh, speaking of which,
1: I just read a really interesting article the other day. It is by my Twitter friend Mitchell, who uh, writes for Sojourners magazine. And it was detailing, actually, this might be web only. So we we might just like have to throw a link in the show notes because this is really interesting. I would love that. I've heard of conscientious objectors before, like for wars. Yep.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, like the, like particularly Mennonites, I think are famous for conscientious objecting.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: And I don't know a ton of the history, but from what I understand, it's usually like during war times, like them objecting to the draft on moral grounds, like for religious reasons, and then they get filed to put into like some sort of other work, right? Yeah. So this article uh, went down the road of like conscientious objectors today who are particularly objecting to being taxed and their tax money going towards war efforts because they religiously believe in nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just like had no idea that there's Christians out there that are trying to do that kind of activist work as like a form of protest. I still don't completely understand how it works, to be honest. I got a little lost in that, <laughs> sure. But like <laughs> right. their their premise is like trying to like make a like a noticeable financial statement because they don't want their money funding war.
2: Mm. Interesting.
0: So uh, I'll I'll send that
1: to you guys. It was a very interesting read. I kind of want to read yeah. it again.
0: I've had that thought before. To be honest, I d- I do think it's in kind of the way like you know in the good place where they start realizing like yeah all I did was buy a tomato, but that tomato like perpetuated like substandard or like inhuman work conditions for the person uh, picking the tomato, you know, and then it, it contributed to extravagant carbon emissions to put it on a freighter, to get it across the ocean, to get that tomato to your grocery store so you can buy it. Mm -hmm. And like that interconnectedness of it all. I've had that thought about my taxes and the American military before. I haven't done enough thinking about it to take it that direction, but honestly I see where that reasoning comes from. I mean, like the famous Hollywood conscientious objector film was Hacksaw Ridge. You know, the guy yep. like rescuing all the Marines at the top of that Island. I don't know this movie actually. It's a, it's a good film because it pretty accurately shows like why and how his faith informed the fact that he would not pick up a gun, even though he was drafted into world war II, or he signed up oh. for world war II, but he would not pick up a gun. And it caused a lot of problems and he almost got court-martialed for it because they were like, what are you doing here then? And he's like, I want to be here to help people. And he's like, he's dragging people out of the battlefield, like rescuing so many people off this cliff. And it's a great movie in that sense. In another sense, it's like, yeah, it's the story of heroism, but the film itself still fetishizes the violence and the wartime actions, you know, but uh, it's it's a story that pretty well spells out like why conscientious. Wow. That word is hard, isn't it? Why it is a hard word. Conscientious exists like that objecting to it exists. Um, Emily, I want to bring it back to the, the home safety question that you gave me forever Mm -hmm. ago. And honestly, the, the Greg Boyd hypothetical Josh as well, where it's like, if, if someone's holding a gun to your wife's head, wouldn't you want to be able to solve that problem by taking out the person threatening your loved one? I've I'd never heard that before, but I love where Greg Boyd takes that. Um mm-hmm. where I take that though and cuz it's a question I get very often is I don't see any situation de-escalating to a point where like if I use a gun first of all, I do not trust my own shot enough to like narrowly miss my wife's mm. body while aiming for someone using her as a shield. But also like, well, maybe you should, maybe I should train or something. And that's the other thing is like, I've shot guns before I'm comfortable. It's, it's not like the presence of a gun in a room makes me uncomfortable. And that I think is something that confuses most people is like, wait, you're not afraid of them, but you won't own them either. It's like, yeah, because I don't think a tool specifically designed to kill things is something I should own as a Christian. Mm -hmm. But the safety question is, is an interesting one because... You know, my wife and I have had a lot of conversations about how a situation like that, like how that could go down. And we are both very comfortable with an Anabaptist nonviolent response to it, even to the point of like, if one of us is at gunpoint for some reason, like we're both comfortable with the idea of, of dying in that moment, if I'm honest. But the question that I always get the, 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 The one up is like, yeah, but what if it's your kid who can't understand that theological and intellectual argument for why we're being nonviolent in the moment? And to be honest, I don't have an answer for that beyond. I have some form of strange, confident faith that God does defend and will take care of us regardless of the outcome of that encounter. Hmm. That's the question that makes me the most uncomfortable is like, yeah, what if, what if your kid is being threatened in that moment? Yeah, it's a hard one.
1: And honestly, I I think it's really unfortunate that um, some people uh, literally have to face that. I feel like Mm -hmm. for me, it like Mm -hmm. just comes back to suffering. Like I totally get why this is such a struggle for Christians to wrestle with across the centuries because it like comes back to the problem of suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Steven you reminded me of this book I read a couple years ago it was about philosophy and superheroes I like found it for free on Kindle and honestly it like taught me more about philosophy than my college class did <laughs> um, but so it would like use superheroes as like an example to teach some sort of like philosophical concept mm-hmm. and there was the chapter called why doesn't Batman kill the Joker because the Joker causes way more death than if Batman just killed the Joker. Yeah. Like, if he killed the Joker, he'd be done with. And it used the chapter to explain the difference between deontology and utilitarianism.
0: Whoa. Okay.
1: Mm. Yeah? Okay. So, yeah. basically, okay. so Batman is a follows deontological ethics. He believes that there's, like, a clear duty, uh, a clear set of rules of right and wrong. Batman believes it is wrong to kill, no matter what, um, versus a utilitarian... Would just for like utility's sake, for so less people, fewer mm-hmm. people die, you would kill the Joker. Mm-hmm. Right. Because just that one death is like far better than 100 deaths. Yeah. And to be honest, in this whole discussion between like Christian violence or like a response to nonviolence, I keep thinking about like seemingly contradictory opinions in this discussion. For instance, like there's the home defense discussion. But then I feel like I was also raised on, like, some level of martyr porn. Oh, yes.
2: Mm.
1: You almost hoped that, like, violence would be committed against you and that you would be the one that was, like, innocently harmed. Wow. Like, almost following in, like, Jesus's and the disciples' footsteps. And, like, those two opinions, I think, are, like, diametrically opposed to each other. I would agree. Like, those are very different, like, philosophical takes on how to respond to violence. And that intrigues me. I'm not really sure where to go with that. I'm not like making a point here, but like it kind of just astounds me like how many different types of responses there are to Christian violence or like how to apply being a Christian to inform what we do when there's violence. We're gonna take a quick break to say a few thank yous. Then we'll be back to our conversation. Thank you to our generous patrons for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Y'all are such a huge encouragement to us. If you'd like to support future episodes of Ravel, visit patreon.com/ravelpod or by tapping the link in the show notes.
2: Thank you to everyone who is giving five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts and to everyone who contributes to our weekly discussions at Ravel Pod on Instagram and Twitter.
0: And of course, much love to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color.
1: And thank you to the Highline Media Network for having us as one of their founding podcasts. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People.
2: And when we really embody who we are erotically, like I I talk about embodying the erotic self, you strip down to really come to know, like that deep inner knowing that you are beautiful and perfect just the way you are. And when you really know that, you exude it and you fully embody this confidence, like this Christ confidence, really. And when you think about it, that's just kind of how, how I reconcile what it means for me It's just knowing that I am fully complete.
1: And now back to our conversation.
0: I don't know if it's just that I just, I was never raised in a house with guns and my, Mm. my father honestly has most of the same opinions I do less, less informed by scripture or like some form of theological conviction. My dad has honestly always been like, yeah, I know my way around a gun, but like I've never lived in a place where I really needed to feel like home defense was a thing we did. And also he takes the conversation around the fetishization of guns, even in like, toys, video games and movies. And he's like, yeah, I mean like we we'll watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan and it's a movie that teaches a lot more than just like guns are here to like force your hand in some sort of encounter. But what he never wanted to make a possibility was I watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan and then I get the hunting rifle out of the safe and like start using it as a toy because I'm imagining myself as a US army man. Mm. And, and literally just like playing with it and then accidentally firing it or, you know, all these those heartbreaking stories of like kids finding the handgun. And just because they play video games and they've seen movies with it, they start playing with it and they accidentally kill someone because they didn't know it was loaded or uh, some sort of negligence on the, the gun owners part. Which actually statistically happens a lot. Yes, it does. It's, it's pretty wild.
1: You can just look it up. It's wild how often child death happens with guns.
0: Right. And. Conversations like that is where my family kind of like where I grew up with my attitude around guns, but I'm just not in a place where I think they ought to be like treated as, uh, I don't know, flippantly as they are in our culture. Mm -hmm. Like my wife and I are pretty committed to not even doing like, like there are so many other forms of play that we think it's possible to raise kids without even like nerf guns or squirt guns. Because what that does is like desensitizes you to the idea of like pulling a trigger on someone. And like in this case, interesting, in this case you're getting sure. someone a little wet, but in another case, someone is actually pulling a trigger to intentionally end the life of another human being. And we want to make that such a serious consideration Interesting. See, I feel like I'm pretty much
1: on the same page as you in terms of, like, home defense ethics. Right. uh, And, like, willingness to, like, not harm another human being in defense of my own life or loved ones. Uh But, like, I'm not on the same page about you with the, like, no toy gun thing. Like, I see what you're saying about, like, guns just being normalized in, like, our media and our toys and stuff like that. But, like, I just keep coming back to the idea that because our cultural evolution surpasses our biological evolution that we like come up with technology quicker than sometimes our ethics can track with. Right. And I feel like the gun conversation is like one of those, but also so is, uh, so is nuclear technology. Like mm. nukes have like a h- way bigger power to kill people than guns ever would. Or like you hear the, you hear the phrase like guns don't kill people, people kill people. people and kill, I feel like, yeah. And yeah. I feel like that's an appeal to ethics or like christians would famously say like it's a hard
2: problem. <laughs> Why did you have to say it that way,
0: Josh? <laughs> Wait, Josh, so where so where do we disagree though? Cuz I um I just feel like that's the logical conclusion to like guns are to be taken far more seriously than our culture does at the moment. And I don't want to train my kids to even view a toy you know, cause like a, a kid doesn't even have like the object permanence concepts to really realize what they're saying. Like, you know, like <laughs> when you're playing with Nerf guns or something and you're like, I hit, I shot you, you're dead. And the kid is like, no, you didn't, you didn't hit me. I'm not dead. And like, they're saying like, it's a really <laughs> morbid thing. They're saying if you like detach just a little bit, but like a six year old is hitting another kid with like a foam ball. <laughs> And yes, maybe I'm just taking that too far and maybe I'm just like blowing that way out of proportion. But I, I view that as like we're cheapening what it means to actually take the life of another thing. And I just I don't want my kids to be raised thinking that that in any way be, it can be a game or should be a game. Hmm. Mm. That's fair. But like, do, do, you you think think, I'm the, do you think I'm taking that too far? Do you guys think I'm just
1: I don't like, no, I in one <sighs> way I want to say yes, but I don't know how to like defend myself against that now.
2: Here is what I would say is, Stephen, it doesn't matter if it is taking it too far or not, because at the end of the day, as a parent, you are just trying to do what you believe is best for your child. And while there may be some forms of parenting that may be questionable, I think morally where you're coming from, it, that's not bad. I don't, I don't think what you are wanting to instill in your children, that that's a bad thing to say like, no, you know, just because this is a toy, there are guns that aren't toys. And really those are hard conversations. And I think that's maybe where this whole time I've been listening is it comes down to education. It comes down to having those hard conversations. Both of my parents served in the military. They never saw combat. Luckily, my mother was a horrible shot. Uh, She'll tell great stories of target (laughs) practice and it cracks me up. Um my mother is truly the most altruistic person I've ever met. She's also the size of a hobbit. Uh so just imagine that, okay? She is, it's true. And and my dad is one where he loves watching any sort of war movie or, you know, gunsmoke, John Wayne old western movies. And yet the scenes where loved ones are being buried because they were shot or military burials where they're presenting flags to loved ones. He can't watch those because he was part of that reality. He served on the color guard and the honor guard in the Air Force and he mm-hmm. would be at the funerals of deceased military personnel and he would fold the flag and he'd have to give it to a mother, a son, a grandfather, whomever. And I think That reality that they experienced when raising two daughters, they weren't fearful that my sister and I were going to grow up if we played with water guns or Nerf guns and go shoot someone because they taught us better. They taught us Mm. this is a toy. When I shoot you, you don't feel anything, right? It's Nerf. It's plastic. There are things that you shoot that cause harm. There are things that you can shoot that will hurt you. And there was the education piece behind it. You know, my dad had hunting rifles in the house. He would go hunting. He stopped hunting a while ago. But I was never in this mindset of, oh, I know where the guns are and I'm going to sneak out and, you know, go shooting with my friends because that was just never a reality that was taught to me. I just knew that the guns were there and I knew how to use them properly and when not to use them. A part of me wants to say it's very clear, you know, it's a very black and white scenario, but it's not always the case. Mm. You know, it's not we we have we have communities where kids are given a gun at young ages and they're told, you need to go shoot this guy. You know, we have children soldiers in our world. Mm-hmm. We have people where kids are used to seeing guns lying about throughout their house, and yet they still don't touch them. But then you do have the kids that will sneak into their parents' gun safe because they've learned where the parents have hidden the keys, and they'll go steal a gun, and then they'll go and do something reckless. But again, it's just one of those things where we need to be educated. And as Christians, we need to be educated on our history of violence, either our involvement or lack thereof, and how we can be educated in terms of what it means to love our neighbor and to not justify violence in that sense. Mm. You know, like I, the argument I love is so-and-so shot someone. Um, they deserve the te- the death penalty. You know, let's, let's kill them. No, <laughs> like there are just some things that are not justifiable in that sense. And I think violence is one of them. And we just need to plant Firmly in that stance of saying, we do not stand with violence. And I don't care who's doing it. I don't care if it's Joe Schmo down the street who's an atheist or if it's sweet little old Mary who's on a psychotic break and is holding her family at gunpoint. Oh, but she attends this church and she's such a sweet old lady. I don't care who you are. You are still a part of this world. You are a part of the human race and we should not justify or have this means of violence be acceptable for anyone for any reason Mm. and it really just comes down to education like when my daughter is born if we want to play with squirt guns cool but i'm going to make sure that she's aware of the world that we're present in and that there is violence and that there are other forms of violence that don't always involve guns too and that's a reality we also have to face what about the violence that rape, human trafficking, those are violent. And, you know, we we have to make a stance on those issues as well.
0: It's interesting to me, though, that things like, you know, like rape perpetuated violence or, or even like knives or something like that, like yeah. human trafficking. It's interesting to me that the, the gun conversation in America gets so uncomfortable, whereas I'm pretty sure most human beings, if not all human beings, would say like. Yeah, uh, rape is 100% bad all the time. And yet having having a, like I, I just the gun, the, especially the modern day gun, like there's no application for such a tool beyond taking the life of something else. Like certainly mm-hmm. you could maim, but who's like a, a small minority of people who own guns are a good enough shot to like let me like non-fatally shoot them in the leg So that they can't run away, you know, and disarm them that way or whatever. Like,
2: And there are other means to maim people.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. But like, I, man, I I really appreciate uh, the education conversation. I think that's valuable and I think that's something I need to do more thinking about. At the same time though, I'm really glad you brought up like the mythical figure of John Wayne Um, because I think, Mm -hmm. I think John Wayne and like the Western culture that came out in those types of movies, but also just like the cultural movement of like manifest destiny as we move from East to West in our country. Mm. I think the, the mythology of like the lone cowboy with a six shooter able to enforce some form of justice that even the local sheriff couldn't pull off. I think that is like so deep in our American culture. And that's honestly like a big part of the problem in my mind. I think that kind of, It's almost like conservatives don't trust the police either. (laughs) Sorry, that was
1: a that was a stereotype. But But, oof. As it's like that that's what gets me about this discussion is that like there's so much irony in like anyone's response to violence. Because there's like always another opinion that they have that like seems like it's contradictory.
2: Mm.
0: No
1: matter where anyone falls on the political spectrum.
0: I'm sure there are plenty double standards that you could point out in my own life, and I only happen to take guns this seriously and i don't happen to take you know drinking alcohol as seriously but in that case i mean like god is not surprised that alcohol does that to our brains and in fact i think that god probably designed it that way and that's okay but like when it comes back to that design question is like a gun is only designed to kill something else whether you're killing a deer elk moose uh chipmunk or a person (laughs) yeah you're only target
1: practice like some people like to just shoot things I mean, like, I've shot in a gun before, and, like, it is kind of a rush when you, like, shoot it and you hit the target. Like, I can admit that that in it of itself is, like, a fun act. I'm not super into it. I don't think I'm ever going to get into it as a hobby. But I think there's plenty of gun enthusiasts out there. I kind of, like, to put myself in their corner again, I'm not convinced that, like, gun abolition is actually, A, going to be successful, or, like, B going to be the right thing. Like, on some Mm -hmm. level, I think I do agree that it's a heart problem or an ethics problem or, like, whatever you want to call it. I'm not convinced that, like, outlawing guns and, like, taking away like rights like that in America kind of, like, has happened in Britain. I'm not convinced that's going to fix our problem with violence. I think that, like, we have to, like, go to the root of the problem rather than, like, kind of like with your alcohol thing, like, not everyone struggles with it the same way. Not everyone has the same relationship to it. Sure. And, like, on some level, we just have to, like, figure out how to be responsible with, like, the thing that we have.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I agree with you. I, I can at least hear that. Um, Bringing it back to John Wayne, though, like, oh, you guys, I wasn't interviewing our friend Jeff Hall for No Normal People just recently.
1: Jeff! Which you should all go listen to that. Jeff is one of our patrons, oh, and he's gosh.
0: amazing. Yeah.
2: Thebomb.com.
0: That'll be out early to mid-May will that episode be out, but I was interviewing him and one of my favorite icebreaker questions to ask my no normal people guests is what's your biggest pet peeve? No hesitation. No pause. Jeff says the myth of redemptive violence. (laughs) And I was like, Whoa, that was, it was so fast too. Like, and I think a character like John Wayne or, you know, this mythos of like the lone ranger satisfying some form of violence in this western and I mean like American western like (laughs) old Mm -hmm. west you know in this western mythology of like this lone ranger cowboy who's able to satisfy some form of justice the justice is only ever perpetuating this idea of redemptive violence and again when that redemptive violence is being committed behind a tool that is specifically only designed to kill other things like I hear your target practice counter to that Josh but at the same time like you know, like when I practice drums, I'm practicing for a performance. And if I'm practicing shooting a target, what am I actually practicing for is my next question. And in my mind, it's, it's always to shoot something else. As, as much of a hobby as the target practice can be, I think there's still an underlying assumption that you're going to end up shooting another living thing, whether to harvest it for its meat or defend your home. Like it's practice for something. And I don't think we should be practicing mm-hmm. for killing anything. And I think part of our American mythos around the uh the lone ranger with the gun is that some form of like satisfaction or some form of violence like that's how stupid it appears now with the benefit of hindsight like us as a culture look back at the practice of like english duels oh yeah right right? like you you can look at aaron burr and uh, alexander hamilton engaging in this duel because they both are like pissed at each other for some political gain Someone died at the end of that, and I just I mm. that should not be the case. Like that's not the way to achieve anything. And even in the in the musical Hamilton, like as, as soon as he shoots Hamilton, like the the entire rest of what Burr sings about is like the regret he feels and like how uh, like it caught him by surprise that it hit him that hard. That he's like, I just took the life of a person I've known for decades.
2: Mm-hmm. Um.
1: This was all the way back in our uh, episode we did on originalism. I actually don't remember what we called that episode.
2: Something. It was forever ago.
0: On the origin of spiritual truth. That's
2: Thanks, what it David. was.
1: Uh, I posed the question. I believe, like, do you think that because we were vegetarian in the garden, that means that we should be or to vegan, like, supposedly? Do you think that that yes. means we should be vegan Thank now? You.
0: That is actually one of the double standards you could point out against me because I totally I don't own a gun to either defend my home or like I like the there's a romantic idea of hunting in my mind but like I can imagine sure. that if I ever got behind a 22 rifle to drop a deer I would be like I actually don't want to kill that thing I would rather just sit here and look at it um mm-hmm. totally which mm-hmm. like we could we could go back and forth and
1: like argue about consciousness but like someone yeah. like Greg Boyd totally like takes the side of he believes God is nonviolent. So he like takes his concept of he believes we should also be nonviolent to mean he should be vegan. And like, he doesn't like get super preachy about it. Like he talks about it like more of a personal conviction than anything else. But sure, I think it's super interesting. Like, to be honest, I'm not there. I hear the argument, like I've read about it,
0: but yeah, it's definitely a double standard to me. Like I, I eat meat probably five days a week. And yet I'm committed to not using a gun to personally kill the thing. I'm willing to go buy that next pound of spaghetti for my uh or my that next pound of ground beef for my spaghetti, you know. And I don't mm. I don't bat an eye at it because I'm so detached from the taking of that <laughs> cow's life. In well, order- thanks
1: for listening to Ravel, uh, where we've learned once again that Steven <laughs> is a gun hating, meat loving hypocrite. <laughs>
0: Again, though, I don't, I get that some people hear my commitment to not own a gun or defend my home or, or even my family with a gun. I get how people can hear that double standard. I just. Sure. I Maybe I'm just like myopically committed to a standard of nonviolence that I think Jesus preached and Jesus demonstrated by disarming Peter and Jesus demonstrated by taking the cross voluntarily and not even like, not even trying to come to his own defense when he was before Pontius Pilate. Hmm. And part of that might be he just knew that this was part of the designs of what the father wanted or like this is what this is what God was committed to do to prove to us that this is the length he's willing to go to redeem us. Mm -hmm. And maybe he was just he was committed to that. But I think that commitment could pretty easily like copy paste into his disciples and be like, you also ought to be committed to it to this length to be my disciple.
2: I would say, Stephen, that I don't think there's, I don't really think there's a double standard with the whole vegan argument. The only reason I say that is because the act of hunting, I feel like, is different than the act of murdering a human being.
0: Yeah, I agree.
2: So, Stephen wanting a pound of meat for his spaghetti, I'm not going to be like, but that cow had to die at the hands of a farmer for, like, yeah. That cow had a mother. Would you want your son to die? <laughs> like, I just I, maybe it's because I also love meat <laughs> and and bacon and all the chicken. You name it. Um, I I think it comes to back to the to the point of intention and education. Like the intent of hunting is hopefully that you're going to utilize. The thing you are hunting, whether for meat or for goods, as far as clothing, merchandise, mm-hmm. you wanna make money.
0: And that's you know And that's part of the romanticism to me around hunting. Like I I mm-hmm. talked to my friend Dylan Dietz on No Normal People, and he's an avid hunter, and he like <laughs> there's there's a way of looking at hunting that um maybe romantic is the wrong word, but like yes, it's very you know, you respect this animal enough to like prepare its meat well and to mm-hmm. uh, like butcher it well so that you can feed your family for a year and you can use the pelt for this and you can use the antlers for like that, that, uh, in a way does come back to like a lot of native American theology where, mm-hmm. you know, like they would use every single part of, I said theology, maybe it is a form of theology, but like they're respecting the animal enough yeah, to recognize like that they can give us more than just a few pounds of ground beef. And then we toss away the rest as if it's useless. Um, I think it
1: totally is a theology. Like uh, someone just pointed out to me the other day that uh, part of the like reasoning or the tradition behind some of the kosher laws found their root in trying to remember and respect that the things that you're eating were living beings, like, especially the whole, uh, like, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk.
0: Like part of it was just Mm -hmm. like,
1: like to respect That those two beings had a relationship. Right. And of course, that's not like all of the dietary laws, but I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Like, I hadn't really heard some commentary on the dietary restrictions before. And uh, I feel like it totally ties into the, like, a lot of the mindsets that hunters, at least here in the US, tend to have when it comes to like respecting the animal that you've killed to eat.
0: Yeah.
2: I also want to point out that I think the states that we reside in, in Wyoming in particular, where they are very, avid hunters and that mindset, that culture around it. Not that there are no incidents of gun violence in those areas, but I would say a lot of the gun violence that is perpetuated is not found in areas like Laurel, Montana or Cody, Wyoming. It's places where gun violence is perpetuated because of stereotypes and because of lack of education. And that's not to be a bad thing. It's truly in larger cities. There's just demographically those who are not educated and are around systemically guns and violence and gun violence. So I think that's where we personally, maybe, maybe myself, is struggling with this whole idea is because I have confidence in the people who are my neighbors, who live down the street, who work at Walmart. That, yes, while they open carry or conceal and the fact that there are guns on display, like it's a jewelry store everywhere, they're educated. And the means of guns that are used here is primarily for hunting. Mm. And Mm -hmm. culturally, it is different than in other areas of our nation. I would
1: agree. Yeah.
0: I think there's something to the hunting conversation, too, especially Native Americans. Like I, I know people and I've heard stories of people out here. Um, in Montana like on the Crow Reservation that still practice traditional hunting like with full-on spears and knives instead of guns and part of the conversation I've had around that is like they they want to return to this embodied form of hunting where they actually have to put a tremendous amount of effort in to like chase this thing down, rope it down and, and like there's an intimate uh, relationship they have when they're ending the thing's life with a knife versus A gun kind of uh, detaches you from that, and instead of like a full embodied experience of 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 chasing it down and like smelling its fur and its blood while you're in it, you can be removed three hundred yards and barely exert any energy pulling a trigger. And you're while you're achieving the same end, I think that's also part of my uh, skepticism around guns. Is like the barrier to ending another human life is so much shorter, so much easier, you know, like mm. it, it's, you know, I, I keep harping on it, but like the gun is designed to kill things and kill things in the most efficient way and a way that like requires the least amount of effort. And I think just inherently, just like based on its design, uh, a Christian doesn't, shouldn't have a part in it. Sorry. I dragged us back there, but no,
1: that's good. That's, that's a, good. Uh, but before we end, cause I feel like we should probably wrap up soon. I did want to mention a book, which I think I've mentioned before, even though it's kind of unrelated to the gun discussion, but it's this book called Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Decides. Have I told you guys about this one? Yes. Yep. Um, But just as a refresher, it's like a sociological look at all of the Supreme Court cases that have had some sort of decision-making power for the issues of abortion, physician-assisted suicide, and capital punishment. And- I I really liked it as a book because it like didn't really get into like the issues of gun violence in America, but it really got at like the heart of this problem of like how do we see these different issues that like obviously involve death mm. and like how do we view them socially? How do we view them as a nation? And like what has led us to the points that we're at currently? And it's it's a really it's a really thought provoking book. So I I wanted to recommend that before we signed off.
0: It's an interesting Emily, question though sorry I'm gonna keep oh go ahead <laughs> I still have thoughts it's an interesting question though especially the who decides part and yeah that's probably where I'm where I'm the most uh convicted of not owning a gun myself um, for the use of home defense or anything is because like I feel like who decides like it's been decided for me by who v- who I view Jesus Christ to be i I don't think I have permission to make that decision. A fresh, by increasing the possibility that I'm the one pulling the trigger on someone in my home. That's why. Mm. That's why I always come back to my buzzwordy phrase, where it's like, if I'm also carrying a gun, that at least doubles the chance there's a killer in the house. And I'm just, you know, I, I feel like a broken record at this point, but like, I'm just so <laughs> fundamentally well, against I, killing, right, human to human. That that decision is made for me. It does it. I'm gonna open another can of worms because. Oh, I'm so ready. Open another can of worms at the very end. Do uh, it. I, I have no idea what to do with the argument or with the conversation around like an active shooter event mm. and the argument that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Um, I mean,
1: what's really interesting about that argument is that like nobody in the negotiation tactics of like the FBI... They just have, like, realized that, like, those tactics don't actually work in those situations. Mm-hmm. Like, what really works... Of course, they have snipers still, but, like, they they don't just, like, try and get the first shot. They, like, empathetically meet whoever the perpetrator is. Right. And, like, try to, like, de-escalate. De-escalate.
0: Yeah. And I don't think... I'd, yeah. I don't think me being behind a gun it takes me any closer to de-escalating a situation in my living room if someone throws a brick through and, like, climbs in to steal my TV or whatever like You're i right. i am not de-escalating anything if i'm also behind the barrel of a gun here and the, and that's uh to bring it back all the way to the book that kicked this whole thought off for me is fight by preston sprinkle like he he has story after story of someone breaking in during a home invasion the guy going and meeting him downstairs and being like hey i recognize they were here we're probably both scared do you mind if i make you a sandwich like you can come with me and like there's this de-escalating moment where they just, they're all of a sudden they're literally sharing a table, eating a sandwich and talking about like, so why are you doing this though? And I, I don't want to extrapolate that out and think that every situation will end that way. But I, I think as Christians, our bias should be like act in that sort of empathetic way and don't escalate the situation by uh, doubling the amount of weapons in the room and just remain committed to this nonviolent way of, of seeing another human being in their, in all their faults and all their fears, and maybe even in all their, the evils that they are possessed by man. But even then it's just not my responsibility to decide who lives and who dies in my own home.
1: Treat each other as uh, more important than yourself. Right? Right. Emily, do you have a thought to end us with? I don't even know like what I, I don't feel like I have any new takeaways per se, but like, I just want to hear from you again.
2: I, uh, I'm reminded of action, reflection, action, and there are moments where the action leads to a reflection, um, but you never want to be in a similar situation again. Uh, there are moments where you can have all the training in the world, and yet you make a split-second decision and a life is taken, or...
0: Yeah, you pull a gun instead of a taser
2: you know, something. And I have to remind myself that I am limited in what I am capable of in regards to defense, to even the idea of taking someone else's life. I really, I don't think I have it in me, but there are others who have a strong conviction that if need be, I can, you know, I can take someone else's life. It comes down to an individual intention and an individual's willingness to think, reflect, educate, and to be able to say that they're willing to live with the consequences. And I think we as Christians, regardless of if it's gun violence, if it's, uh, I, there are so many things I could try to ramble on about. I think we just have a due diligence to really think seriously. What are we called to? What does that look like? And knowing that there's going to be so many unique situations that we could be a part of. We could all, I could die in a car accident tomorrow uh, at the hands of a drunk driver. I, I could die at the hands of someone holding a gun at a grocery store. I could also die at the hands of an infection while giving birth. There are so many things that we are limited in the scope of what we can do or what we should not do. If we spend time bickering with one another, we're not getting to any resolution. And I think that's where gun violence is one, where if we spend so much time bickering about Second Amendment rights, hunting rifles, Whatever the case may be, video games, that's not helping anything if you're not willing to actually take the time to educate and to have an understanding of intention. And we're called to be intentional people. We're not called to live life just aimlessly, passively. We have to be present, we have to be engaged. And that means calling out the systems of our world that are not working. And violence is a reality that will be an experience for all people forever that's just the way human nature is so what can we do about that what can we do to actively be present to resolving violence to resolving hatred to resolving misinformation miseducation and what good can we have from this what good what good news can we have from this coming together and maybe that's too rose colored lens type thinking, but I do think it is possible for us to have the chance to educate and to be intentional Um, and that this is a really hard topic and we clearly don't have any answers (laughs) and we may never will, but at least we're trying to ravel this out. We're trying to come together to understand what we are called to and ultimately what we're called to is love. That's what I would say.
0: Mm. If I may, I think it all comes down to watching Jesus lose his life on the cross and his main like affirmative statement being Lord into your hands, I commit my spirit. I think that's what drives me the most is that if if I'm called to be like Jesus, I think that's the Jesus I'm supposed to be like. Hello and welcome to No Normal People. I'm Steven
2: and I'm Dixie Lee. The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors, artists, and thought leaders.
0: Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called Sonder, and this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire Sonder in yours.
2: No normal people. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast, and in Montana. Highline Media Network, normal people in normal places.